0: Hi everyone. Welcome to This Much I Know, the Seedcamp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Welcome everyone. This is the second live video podcast and again, if you're listening to this without any video, it's because we messed up somehow and we've left with the audio, but Hopefully this has worked out really well and you know one of the great things about video is that it gives me a chance to catch up with the people in a very more far more personal way than just audio and today we're going to be talking about something that's very personal which is the terms the legal terms that you take when you bring on a new investor and to have that conversation uh, I thought it would be absolutely amazing to have uh, one of my partners at Seedcamp Tom Wilson and he's going to get into a little bit about his background. But, um, you know, the key thing that, that came up was he's recently, recently written a blog post about things you need to look out for uh, in times like today. Uh, and we were thinking, you know, what would be great is if we just went through some of the key terms that a uh, founder needs to consider as you're going through, you know, looking at a new investment term sheet. So we said, hey, why not, why not tee up a conversation? And go through the key points that we usually go through when we walk through um, terms with founder so with that, Tom, nice having you great to great to join Carlos. great
1: to you know get the get the call up for the the second live <laughs> video podcast you know very very honored, very honored um yeah, and I think you know you, you touched upon there I guess a little bit maybe why I'm the guest for this one. And I suppose that's, I guess, my background prior to prior to Camp. So I've been at Camp for almost six years now, coming up six years actually in August, I think. Um, but before that, uh, I qualified as, as a lawyer and focused primarily on kind of like private equity, private companies um, and venture capital law in the kind of fundraising and kind of like deal side. So I guess, for the purposes of this conversation, I can have almost two hats on there: the the old legal hat, um, which I still try to, you know, as Carlos said, you know, produce content around and try and kind of distill some of the, the the reasoning behind some of these legal terms, and then also the the investor hat, you know, a, alongside Carlos and the rest of the investment team here. You know, we're we're looking at and seeing a lot of deals on a on a kind of daily basis. So hopefully, we can we can be helpful and in this in this kind of video podcast.
0: So one of the fun things obviously you know with with a, with this chat it, it gives me a chance to talk up a little bit some of the great things I love about Tom and one of the anecdotes that we've maybe shared privately with a, f- a few people but now I'm going to share publicly to to anybody who's watching this is how we met Tom uh because it's just a funny story so Tom used to be the lawyer not not well not only was he a lawyer but he was actually our lawyer for the firm that was helping us set up SeedCamp as a fund. And, and I remember having a chat with him saying, hey, would you like to join us? And that's how ultimately he came to, to be part of the SeedCamp team about six years ago. But one of the key things that I remember uh, was when we were closing uh, the fund legals, Tom, I don't know if you remember this, there was yeah. this whole table with all these documents and we had to go through them in sequence to set up the fund. I, you know, This is probably something that most people don't necessarily go through in real life. But what the, the great thing was that Anytime I got stuck, and this is why I think it's this the theme of this podcast. Anytime I got stuck, it's like, Tom, what, is, what does this mean? Tom, what does this mean? And so, with that, I figured let's kick off. So, one of the key things that we wanted to do was go through terms that really define a term sheet or define an investment agreement. But before we do that, let's just go through a couple of different structures because I think usually when people think about legal terms, they think about um, structures first, and whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing doesn't really matter. But by structure, we mean different instruments or different containers for commercial terms. Uh, And some of you might have heard of like ordinary equity or like preferred equity or series C preferred equity, effectively shares. Um, Then there's convertibles, there's safes, there's ASAs. I don't know if you want to comment on on any others, Tom, or, or kind of what what differentiates them, like maybe the difference between, let's say, a, a contract versus like a, the company's house type filing. Like what differentiates those four maybe to kick <clears throat> things off?
1: Yeah, no, I think you've hit nail on the head in terms of they probably the four kind of main documents and actually in many ways kind of convertibles, safes, ASAs are all pretty similar. I think the, the main difference you've got there between those group of documents and then something which would often be encapsulated as a first step as a term sheet um, and it's more to do with issuing shares. And they're probably the, the two differences we've got here with these two kind of early in- instruments to kind of document a financing round. The, the When you go down the equity route, the company is actually issuing shares and then with those shares – you know, the people who receive them, obviously the investors usually in this case get certain rights and they get some rights just by privy of getting shares. And then they usually get a kind of increased rights which are encapsulated in something often called like a shareholders agreement or an SHA or something like that. So that, and then also some of the rules which are connected to those shares or connected to the company are encapsulated in something called the articles of association. And as you said, when you're issuing shares, there's often filings. There's basically when you go down this kind of equity route, which usually starts with a term sheet, it's the kind of first document. You, you, there's, there's a more kind of complex set of documents which come out of that. And there's more rights. There's more rights associations. And that's connect.
0: why sometimes they take a while, right? Exactly. Exactly.
1: And so that's why the other instrument, which you talked about there, which kind of broadly speaking is usually either a convertible or an advanced subscription agreement, an ASA, or in the US, a SAFE, often is the, the term used, it's simple agreement for future equity. All of these are instruments which, again, can like document a funding round but don't actually require the time the company to issue shares. And so it reduces the paperwork required. It broadly kind of can pretty much exactly mirror what the kind of economic agreements or the valuation and all that kind of stuff that you get on the equity position. Um, but usually, and you know, there's some arguments around this, and there's some companies like Seed Legals, which is one of our companies, which actually allows you to do equity rounds really quickly. But traditionally, one of the reasons you'd go down a convertible or an ASA as an early stage um, kind of financing instrument or route is because of speed. Usually, it allows the company to get something done quicker and to. You know, above all, which is what everyone wants, the investor
0: and the and the company, the founders, to get things done a bit quicker. Yeah, and to get that to get the company funded, really, yeah, as exactly. opposed to waiting a long time. But don't worry, guys, if you didn't catch that or or you know you want to go deeper into that, we can have a follow-up at some point in the future. The point is that there's many different ways of structuring an investment. And one of the golden rules that I have when I when I chat chat to founders, and I know you do too, Tom, is Focus first on the terms and then on the structure. I think sometimes it's very easy to get wrapped up with what's on social media or what's on a blog post somewhere like, oh, convertibles or a safe or why see this? Or, you know, the, the, the reality is a lot of them can contain the terms and therefore you can get in a good situation or a bad situation terms wise on top of the structure and then be confused as to why you're not in a better place than you should be because you focused on the structure and you didn't focus on the terms. So maybe what we can focus on now is on those very terms, the top terms that really make or break your investment round. And I've broken them out into two separate parts. One of them are the commercial terms, another are the legal terms. And as part of this conversation, we're going to cover maybe the top three, four for each. Um, And I'm just going to rattles some off so you can kind of get a sense of, of what we're going to go through. On the commercial terms, what I refer to as commercial terms is wherever there is like a, a sort of a monetary or financial type angle to it rather than a legal angle to it. So I've included in this things like the size of the round or if the amount of money that is being given to you is broken up all at once or, or in parts. The same thing goes for valuation. You know, how, how, how is it valued? Is there any anything that prevents it from being valued that specific way? For example, if there's a discount or something like that. And then there's stuff like your option pool size, like how much, because that affects ultimately the total dilution in the round. So those are, the, those are things that I refer to as commercial terms. And the things that I refer to as legal terms are things like liquidation preference, anti-dilution, right of first refusal, and redemption rights. And so I know Tom, you you've written extensively about some of these, and I, I have as well, about each one of these. But let's maybe let's go through each one of those, maybe start off with commercial terms and then and then talk about why these things come up. Um maybe in light of what's sort of going on right now and some of the challenges founders might have in fundraising, maybe let's talk about round size and, and tranches and um and how that may manifest itself in today's dimes.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I think round size is something that round names even you know what is a pre-seed what is a seed what is a series a what is it kind of like seed plus what is a series a minus you know these these names and and kind of letters are, are thrown around all over the place but effectively you know obviously all of these in some way usually encapsulate the kind of size of the round and i think round sizes you know if we were probably recording this podcast Five months ago, four or even three months ago, maybe you know you would just see an increasing round size at pretty much every stage. So you know pre-seed, we used to think about pre-seed four or five years ago as like hundred thousand or like you know one hundred fifty thousand or something. And pre-seed is probably going into this you know um, period of challenges around fundraising was probably looking at more like four five hundred thousand so as you kind of pre-seed round size. That's what companies were going out and raising, and that's what good companies still can. And you know obviously. We're often part of those rounds, leading them. Then seed rounds, we're typically seeing now kind of seed rounds getting into that, you know, one, one and a half to three million pounds on the top end. I guess we're talking about the UK market here, but in the U S it's probably even slightly higher than that. And, you know, series a, again, in the kind of three million plus, but probably more like five and on the top end can go as high as, you know, 20 million. I mean, the, the round, size, round sizes at each of these kind of broad milestone stages can, can, really, can really vary, really vary. And, and it's often the reason why those round sizes can get larger is because of the kind of comp- competitive nature of those, some of those rounds. But it's, um, it's going to be interesting to see how they, they kind of change um, as we move into the, the kind of current fundraising environment we're in now.
0: Um, yeah, one of those changes could be the reemergence of tranching. Yeah. And I think tranches is is an interesting
1: investment. I suppose, you know, to to answer the question, what is tranche? You know, obviously, I think you mentioned it at the start, Carlos, it's, you know, it's often where if, say, the round was, you know, a million pounds, rather than it being a million pounds, like usual on closing of the round, all of the investors, and it'd probably be, you know, a few investors who are making up that million would all wire all their money. And then the company in their bank account, when they check it, and literally some of our founders come and say, like, wow, I've got a million pounds in my bank account. It would show in the company bank accounts that whole funding amount. And this idea of tranches obviously, the name is, is pretty self explanatory, means that rather than it being a million pounds up front, it's something like, you know, 300,000 or 500,000 up front. And then the the rest of the money will come either just for some, you know, period of time has passed or often because the company has hit some kind of a milestone. And the challenge with my, tranches is, I think we, we both share this opinion. I know that is, it's you know you you kind of you drip feeding money into the company, rather than giving it that money and that firepower from the outset. And often one of the bigger things is the milestones which you defined can be they can be interpreted in different ways, and they can create one of the, the biggest problems with any kind of like commercial or financing situation, which actually is a kind of akin to what's going on in the markets now, is uncertainty. And I think uncertainty for founders or stress for founders. So you, you can see the investor side because it it reduces their kind of risk and it can create, if it's done very, very well and drafted perfectly, an interesting incentive structure to unlock those future financing. But in our experience, well, my experience, and I think Carlos probably the same, but I'm sure you can add, it can add a, a layer of complexity
0: it can and and you know that the sometimes these things are tools that are used in conjunction with other terms because they're trying to achieve something so for example the next one we had here was valuation it's you know proportional to that increase in round size there was a proportional increase in valuation uh, you know leading up to, to where we are today and you know the, the way that some investors might want to optimize for uh, maintaining valuations at a certain level um, because either they're trying to appease somebody within the, the shareholder structure is by maybe implementing things like tranches or other terms. So, you know, valuation is one point and probably we're not going to spend too much time on it, but valuation is one point that people can get hung up on at the detriment of some of these other points. Um, and the option pool, again, is is one of these things that you need to factor in, but how you factor in matters. And and the how you factor it in is everything from do you have enough for hires that you're going to make? Is it pre or post money? Is it um, the the right kind of uh, option scheme? And, you know, there's different types of schemes. Like for example, there's shadow shares, and then there's um, uh, restricted stock units, and and so there's a whole world of knowledge around uh, what an ESOP is and how it should operate. But maybe you want to highlight any key points there, Tom, that come to mind that that are good to keep in top of mind when you're creating your ESOP?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, a lot of the considerations when setting up an option pool are more commercial. I mean, I think that, you know, there's, there's definitely some tax planning which has to go into place and, you know, certain companies, particularly in the UK can benefit from like EMI schemes, which are very, very, very much worth putting in, in place. Cause they allow for those employees to get very favorable tax treatment and commercial treatment. So that's definitely something to always speak to your lawyer and your advisors about. But I think more broadly, you know, when you're setting up option pools, it's about making sure that the company has enough kind of carved out firepower. And by carved out firepower, I mean kind of an approved proportion of the cap table of the business, which is set out so that you, as founders or the founders of the company, can can go off and can allot those shares, you know, that the kind of amount of those share options. To secure the best possible talent, and I think that it's something that you know skimping on that piece is to the company's detriment, usually in the long term. I think that you know we're not saying go out and start issuing huge percentages of the company. You know, there's a lot of information out there, and uh, you know we we've blogged about this as well extensively about what kind of the size of grants for individual people should look like. But I think having a Good amount carved out of the company so that you can get those great hires in. Cause at the end of the day, early stage businesses or any stage of the business, it's, you know, the people is such a hugely important factor. It's something to, to really have in place and to, and to kind of like, you know, put a lot of effort into, into making sure it's set up correctly as well. Cause if it's set up correctly, that gives you another lever from a kind of economic incentive and a financial incentive to be able to use when, when bringing on great talent.
0: And to be thorough on this point, I think one area that I didn't include within within what we were talking about with ESOP is uh, founder vesting, which also affects employee vesting, right? The two things are things that are typical in a term sheet to specify that the employee vesting tends to be somewhat mirroring, not always, but somewhat mirroring what the founders are. And term sheets can include what that vesting schedule is going to look like. You know, there's everywhere normal. Normal can be anywhere from three to four years, and you know, with cliffs or without cliffs. But all those things are important to keep in mind when you're looking at um, the commercial terms that are being given to you as part of investment round. And we're going to go. We're going to touch on these three points and, and three and a half points in a second when we bring the the whole picture together. But now I want to switch gears into legal terms, um, especially in light of the recent blog post you wrote, Tom where we focused a little bit on probably the number one thing to keep in mind uh, in rounds that are going on and in future rounds that might happen in light of current circumstances. Maybe let's start off with, I, I mentioned anti-dilution. I mentioned liquidation preference, right, first refusal and redemption rights. So maybe let's jump straight into your blog post and and what you talked about regarding anti-dilution, and why it's important to consider.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think... As I said, you know, now if we're moving into this environment where fundraising is harder, you start to think, okay, what would happen is if the company raises a round at a price, you know, lower than the round that they raised previously. And that's where, you know, the clause, but this is this is this is obviously assuming that the company has raised a previous round, and maybe issues some preferred shares, and one of the rights which is with those preferred shares comes anti-dilution rights. And I think that's typical. That's not something to yeah, when you see that in a term sheet, I think, you know, anti-dilution is something which most institutional investors or so venture capitalists or anyone will probably put into the term sheet. And this is to capture and to protect them from this potential that the company raises around at a price lower than the price which they came in at. So it's not to like protect them from diluting in any event because that would be unusual. It's just in these circumstances where the price is lower. Um, so it's this economic dilution effectively. And so that clause, what it, what it's doing is it's making that investor, depending on how it's drafted, putting them Tom, in a position. Tom,
0: can I jump in and, and, and make a point regarding that? Because I think somebody who's listening to this might be wondering, well, why would you have it in there in the first place? Like, why yeah. why, why? is that? Is that just investors being cheeky? And, and maybe it's good to sort of give an example of where that isn't. Trying to be cheeky, or an investor isn't trying to be cheeky with it. It's a, Imagine a situation where an investor is negotiating with a founder with a view that they're trying to come to terms with the valuation. And this is how things are interrelated, right? If you're trying to agree on a valuation and then you end up in a valuation that uh, everyone's happy with, and maybe the investor feels, okay, maybe this isn't exactly where I would have wanted to end up, that disagreement can be reconciled with an anti dilution clause, which effectively says, you know what, I'll agree with you on this valuation, but should that valuation be wrong in the future round, then this is how we'll reconcile it, which is with anti dilution Now, where the two things can maybe get screwed up is when you have both a depressed valuation and anti dilution, so that's where like that's where you start seeing things that are maybe a little bit not in the way that they were intended to be used, but anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. no,
1: I think it's a really good point. I think it's you know one of the things which I guess most investors in a lot of these terms are designed for is to Everyone kind of shares in the upside, but then sometimes there's some protection in the downside, and that's kind of what you're, I guess you're thinking about when you know you're agreeing to maybe a high valuation, but you're recognizing that there is some kind of protection there for the, for these institutional investors who are coming in, and the the way that those anti-dilution clauses are drafted, and you know the, the post ro goes into a lot more detail here, but you know there's a there's kind of two broad ways which they can be done, and you know, one is a full ratchet which effectively means the price which that investor came in at if the future price however long it is in the future happens and it's lower then all the money which the investor invested at the, at the the kind of higher price they would assume that they have paid this lower price and they would get given for free all of the shares, put them in exactly the same position as if they'd come in like at this future point in time that is hugely impactful for the company and you know the numbers can be ridiculous and it can be also even if they issue one or you know two shares at this at this higher price whereas the lower price they've issued you know hundred thousand shares it doesn't matter like they get the full benefit as if this new price had been here and and that's i mean if it's very very rare that those terms have like have come in I, I think probably worked on 200 companies in, in financings over number of years. I don't know if you've ever seen that coming venture round, but who knows what people can try and sneak in there. And it's important to kind of understand the difference. So what they've arrived at to kind of protect the cars' point is, you know, there's usually something called like a weighted average price. And so that builds into, you know, when the new round comes in at this lower price, how many shares are issued there, the actual impact of that, and versus the impact of here, and coming to some form of a kind of an, almost a middle ground. And there's two ways that that can be calculated as well. One is like a broad-based broad-based average and one is like a narrow-based average. Basically, the broad-based takes into account any option pools or anything else, So it's slightly more founder-friendly and the narrow-based only takes into account kind of shares which have actually been issued. Mm-hmm. that's the kind of behind-the-scenes point. Typically, like good news is that most kind of, you know, I think institutional VCs and people who have got, you know, a, a reputation of, you know, doing a lot of deals and understanding how this works. Most people go down this kind of broad based view, which is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but also one thing to bear in mind is, you know, I think we've, we've talked about this a bit on this, on this podcast already, but a lot of these terms and a lot of these ideas founders were kind of agreeing to them, but not necessarily giving much thought to them because the market was just up and to the right. You know, every new round is a new higher valuation or, at least, of, even if it, you know, it wasn't, might not have been two and a half, three times valuation, but at least it was like, you know, two times or one and a half times. And now we're coming to this environment where, you know, they're just the companies might just need to go and raise capital. You know, unfortunately, the market might be more challenging and the valuations might be lower. And so, it is these clauses will come into effect in these kind of times?
0: Yeah, and and the other one that comes up uh, is liquidation preference, you know, and, and how that's used. Maybe you want to touch upon. I mean, first of all. If, um, if, if a founder's is more concerned about liquidation preference over anti-dilution, I guess one question there is, are they even the same thing? And I would argue that they're not. Like liquidation preference is in very specific circumstances, which have to do with an exit, versus anti-dilution, which has to do with a new financing. But maybe with liquidation preference, maybe walk us through the, the key things to consider there, Tom.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly it. I think, you know, liquidation preference, what we're looking at there is, you know, we're thinking about a situation when the company is selling, it's liquidating. I mean, liquidation, the the phrase liquidation is misleading the phrase liquidation
0: kind of feels like when the company is going, you know, going going under or selling at a price lower than, than what came in. Exactly. I mean, so where this stuff gets really interesting is when you start looking at like late
1: stage companies. Mm. So, you know, like take, Take like we work, for example. We work, you know, the the prices which people are paying at these explosive, kind of like, explosive choice, Tom. <laughs> explosive <laughs> choice. <at> these companies <laughs> which are contentious. Raising, these companies which are raising huge amounts of money at very, very late stage rounds, pre pre IPO, at crazy high valuations, you know, you could say that those valuations are not actually accurate in any way in terms of what the investors are actually paying. Because the investors are probably getting these liquidation preferences. And these liquidation preferences, when you, so what it means is basically that you would get paid out first mm. in the event that the price is at the price of the last round. And usually it's, and if it goes above that, then it's better for the liquidation preference not to apply mm. and for it just to get, you know, the the proceeds to get kind of divvied out rata to the shareholdings because that investor would do better in that situation than in the situation of just taking in, taking out what they put in. And so that's kind of like it works and usually most of them you'll see these phrases knocked around the typical view again is that it's you know most people take a kind of one times non-participating equation preference so what what those breaking those phrases down when they get nastier is when you have either multiple so that means you could have so one times non-participating means if the company sells below the price which i came in at I get my money back and that's, that's it. In preference, if there's anything there to ordinary shareholders, which are founders or perhaps other people who hold ordinary shares, that's your kind of liquidation stack there. Now, if it's like a multiple, that means that you might get two times your money back mm. for all these other people, which creates a higher, what they call liquidation stack. If it's preferred, that might, that, what that
0: means. for oh, participating preferred. Participating, sorry.
1: Yeah. Get myself in, in not. <laughs> If it's participating, thanks, Carlos, um, it means that you get, you. what often people call double dip. It means you yeah. get your bit back and you participate, yeah. kind of participating in anything above that according to your shareholding. And so you can see, I mean, the devil's in the detail of this drafting because, you know, one, it can get complex and two, it can make a huge difference. You know, if you think, I can't remember what WeWork's last round was, but, you know, pick any late stage financing. If they've got They've got, you know, a liquidation stack, a liquidation preference, which they probably have. And if the, the company's valuation is say a billion, and they put in a hundred million. Then, if, if the company sells for, you know, a billion or less, they're going to get out that hundred million. So, so the risk is 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 pretty low. I mean, obviously, there's other places they could put that money. Um, but it really it really changes the kind of dynamic of that valuation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could say on the lower end, you know, the the stage that we invest at, kind of seed and stuff. If the company is, if the liquidation preference is coming into account, it means there's not. Is generally there's nothing to go around. There's yeah. n- there's no assets. There's nothing to really liquidate. So it's 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 important to have in there, and it usually is in most, if not pretty much all, kind of institutional seed financings and beyond. whatever there's a preference share, but it it's not really a big thing. I don't think for founders to get worried about, provided it's not participating, provided it's not multiple. Yeah. But I think that you know if we do. And, you know, who knows where the financing market is going? It might not be that we're going to a bad position, but if it is getting into a worse position, I think that that's something that we'll start to see people negotiate or investors negotiate for
0: more. Yeah, maybe, yeah, multiple or or even participating, you know, as a way of, of compensating for other other things. So, you know, conscious of time, Tom, so I'm not going to go too deep into the other ones that we brought up. And, um if you're enjoying this conversation, guys, by the way, on Twitter or, on other, or the social media, say you'd love to see more of the Carlos and Tom show on Legal Hour here. Maybe we call the show Legal Hour with Tom and Carlos. Anyway, if you yeah. like it and you want us to do more of these, just comment on social and, and we'll, we'll talk about some of these other points in more detail. We can talk about it all night, right? I mean, all night, all night. Exciting <laughs> stuff. Love it. Anyway, the, the other ones that we, we spoke about briefly was uh, right of First Refusal and Redemption rights, so and we can revisit those at another point. But I wanted to wrap up with the the really the three key takeaways for a founder um, in light of what's going on and and thinking about uh, their legal terms to structure an investment around. So the first one is focus on the terms, not the structure. Remember, the commercial terms and the legal terms are things that can be drafted into any structure. And even though it might end up looking like a Franken structure, which sometimes ends up happening, you still want to focus on the terms and not get carried away with what's popular in terms of structure. The second one, uh, and Tom, maybe you you can mention a few of these, uh, don't let market standard verbiage prevent you from doing your research. Focus on resources that are online. I know that, um, which ones are the ones you recommend, Tom?
1: Yeah, I mean I think that, you know, that 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 second point you made around kind of like market standard, I think it's is so important. I think that there's and I, I pull over investors up for doing this sometimes as well. And I think you know there's a tendency to say with something's in there on a term sheet, because term sheets are pretty short, right? You know, you're looking at kind of four or five pages, maybe even shorter, maybe I've seen them as low as one page, two pages. So there's not a huge amount of terms there. And that's exactly what Carlos was talking about. You know, you can you can agree those terms with the investor. And you, know, you should get a lawyer to read over it, so you're kind of well prepared. But when you're know, a founder, you're talking to an investor, and there's anything which isn't clear, ask them to explain why it's important to them. And and if they just come back and say, "Oh, this is just standard; it's always in there," that's not a great answer, because the answer should be, you know, this is in this this is in here because you know we want to protect from this situation. And then the next natural probably question, if I was a founder, if I was going to do that negotiation, and saying like, you know how often does that come up? You know, is that something which comes up a lot? Is that something which comes up you know now and then? Um how important is that to, to you as an investor? And they should be able to explain and kind of walk you through that. Um it might might be in conjunction with their lawyers or whatever, but it it's important. And then you, you as a founder can really kind of become empowered to understand the terms and to understand how they can impact and what kind of a foundation you're setting for the company going forward. Because any terms you agree at any financing round, it's the kind of start of the discussion for the next financing round. Yeah.
0: So it's important. And I, I think I we, we mentioned a few. Siri Seed is uh, one of the documents that you can go and download, especially in the States. Seed Summit uh, in Europe. Um, what are the other good resources people can go and verify what is market standard?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's, 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 there's some great resources out there in terms of like people blogging. I think, you know, there's, there's various um, kind of like resources from books. I think, you know, the, the venture deals is always a pretty good um, resource, a bit more US-centric. I think when there's US deals, I think, you know, I see it blocked a lot with that safe. Um, and, I, you know, I think Seed Summit is a good um, a repository of documents and we've, we've put some content up there as well. We mentioned earlier on like Seed Legal is a, is a good kind of resource and platform to be able for founders to be able to use to help Close funding rounds. Um, and they've also got some excellent content on their website. I think that, you know, a, a above all, there's all this stuff which you can really I, I guess, kind of bolster the knowledge mm-hmm. as a founder and, and, and go into those conversations really prepared, which I think is, you know, something that we always try to do with working with the founders that we invest in. And then also, one of the key points I'd say is, you know, when it gets to the stage that you're actually negotiating these documents and, you know, you're closing in on a term sheet or signing a term sheet, lining up and having good corporate counsel, good counsel to represent you yeah. is so important as well. I mean, I think that yeah. there's these kind of stories around, you know, we've got a, a friend of a friend or someone who, you know, we, we know from school or something like that who's going to act as our lawyer. Yeah. Always a disaster. Yeah, always it's a always a disaster. disaster. You know, I it's think It's always in, a disaster. Don't go for the cheapest. Go for, fa- go for lawyers who've done it before are experienced in in kind of helping negotiate on behalf of companies at your stage and can point to examples of where they've done that. Because whilst it might be a bit more expensive on the way, it will save you a lot of money in the long term.
0: And I guess that brings us to the final recommendation, which is think comprehensively about your terms. Don't win one to lose several. I think that's probably the biggest lesson that that, um, I think a lot... Of people, including us, because we got we, we got to think about terms with fundraising for our fund, right? It's the don't lose um, the war to win a battle. And if you are pushing really hard on valuation, you might end up with some, as, as Tom mentioned in his example, you might end up with some uncomfortable terms around anti-dilution or liquidation preference. You want to look at this as a whole picture and understand the repercussions in different scenarios. And of course, we're all optimists. We all want the best outcome and we all can organize things around the best outcome, but we never know, like that's the whole thing you never know what's going to happen and, and you just want to have these terms represent the fairest, the fairest representation of all possible scenarios. So any, any final points or comments from you, Tom?
1: No, that's it. I mean, it's, you know, it's been good fun to be on, be on the show.
0: Yeah, no, well, we should, we definitely should do this more. I, if you guys loved it and would like to see more of it, let us know. And until next time, guys, thank you. Bye. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.